the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hi, friends. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, a show, at least by design, about diving into the mess, the gray, the tense, the stuff that doesn't have easy answers. Uh, we'll at times disagree. We haven't yet really argued yet. Maybe no. maybe that day is coming. Maybe we'll both be sleep-deprived one of these days <laughs> enough. <laughs> People need to know how sleep-deprived you are today. Like, it is. You've, Should they know? Jo- Should they joked, know? We've joked a lot about it. Uh, Two seconds before we st- we started talking, you just said, "What day is it again today?" <laughs> it's Thursday, right? <laughs> I do want to make sure I get the, the. I never say what day it is on the show anyway, so I don't even know why I was asking. Yeah, you're you're a tired one. I, I'm I'm energy guy today. <laughs> you're energy guy. You're, you're energy guy most days. You're coffee guy today. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. You can go to eleven sixty hope dot com. You can also text us now. So the number is six eight six eight three, and then uh, in the message you type the letter CG for Common Good, and then your question, your comment. Uh, a pun, a riddle. We got some good feedback yesterday. We did. Uh, which we really appreciate. But you shared an article. Actually, you were talking about this yesterday, and then we were reading the article this morning from Christianity Today. Uh, Lifeway to close all 170 <coughs> Christian stores. Yeah, it feels like the end of an era, right? Like It really does. Growing up, I we always went to the Christian bookstores, whether it was Lifeway or um, you know, just your local Christian bookstore. In fact, I... I worked above one when I was in in college. Oh, really? I've told you the story, right? I worked for Testaments. Oh, gosh, yeah. The Mint with a Message. <laughs> it is, is, I should, on principle, really love that. No, you shouldn't. <laughs> but, oh, my gosh. It, was, it was the greatest like college job, like summer job, because I would just, one summer I just called Christian bookstores, and the next summer they sent me to conferences, so I got to travel. That's and, pr- that is pretty cool. But it is exactly what it sounds like. It, it's a mint with a cross on it. Like, that's all it is. And so that that was on all the Christian bookstores. But, you know, I, I grew up loving to go to Christian bookstores and just kind of thumbing through books or seeing the fun stuff that they had. And now Lifeway's closing all their stores. They yeah. will have uh, no more brick and mortar operations. And this it feels like a big deal. It feels like um, I don't think there's some big theological. If you're on Twitter last night and, and with any of these people, you saw kind of Rachel Held Evans and others kind of saying, well, Lifeway's really um, strict stance on the type of books they have is doing this. I just think bookstores are closing, huh. right? I think there's uh, this has more to do uh, the fact that, like, think about where do you get your books? Like, if you're like, hey, I need a book, or are you like, all right, I'm going to go over my lunch hour, go drive to the local you're assuming that I read at all. <laughs> no, it's Amazon. Yes. You go right to Amazon. Exactly. Uh, with the exception of like maybe some, if you're looking for something more scholarly, sometimes it's harder to find. But I, I do agree, though. There's a certain level of nostalgia. Like I remember even 
when I was like really getting into music for the first time, the Christian bookstore in my town yes. had this like section that was sort of, <laughs> it was sort of like dark. Like it, it, it seemed like it was intentionally like lit poorly. And that's where like all the Christian metal and punk was. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm home. Like that's where I discovered bands like, like Zayo and Living Sacrifice. And like that, I found that at this like really squeaky clean local Christian bookstore. And it yeah. became like the place for me to go. I don't think I ever bought books there, to be honest. I probably bought Testaments, but, <laughs> no, but like, did not. it actually really became like a, a um, it was like a little bit of a laboratory to discover Christian artists. And that, yeah. that became, I mean, and that closed years ago. It was just an independent shop. But it is there is something to be said, though, about the significance of that many stores that at once, you know, was kind of an empire. Yeah. All shutting down. I think that's really fascinating. And the, the other funny thing about Christian bookstores, this article talks about something, and it's almost, it's just a weird thing to talk about it said they called they brought uh they carried so-called jesus junk whose sales <laughs> were meant to bolster more serious products but man i can't tell you how much i grew you and i have talked about this but how much i grew up in like the evangelical subculture right so what i loved about the christian bookstore was like what are the new christian t-shirts out there that i could buy you know like uh so what was your favorite i can't remember it uh because oh, yeah. I'll buy you some time. I loved the ones. <laughs> I just remember how bad they were. Well, they had some that like looked like uh, already existing products, but they'd changed them. Like there was Crest toothpaste, but it spelled out Christ instead. Or Reese's was, uh, you know, in cursive it spelled out Jesus. Or and it always yeah. had some sort of pun. I'm realizing now I've loved puns since <laughs> An early for as age. long as my brain has been online. That's that's but even <laughs> Christian puns is maybe maybe that's why I like Testament. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it was those T-shirts that it was like. Uh, you know, that you'd wear, you'd wear to school as a youth group kid being like, I'm an evangelist now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I'm, I'm making a difference. People I'm are asking because of this shirt. Look at this shirt right here. <laughs> what, a, it, what an activist. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to give them their testaments after lunch. I'm going to wear my t-shirt. But Okay, so what fits into this category of Jesus junk then? Oh, I think it's all that kitschy stuff. All those. Uh... Unlike what we just talked about. <laughs> no, I think it's also that. Oh, it's right? that too. Okay, but like, okay. You know, it was always the stuff uh, that that you would just see over, you know, around your grandma's house, <laughs> like the little plate. <laughs> or, Poor grandma. Or now, you know, now it's probably like Jesus bobblehead dolls. Yeah, and right, stuff right, like right. that. Like there's Jesus action figures. And um, and so it I, there's a bit of nostalgia for me. When I read this article, I was like, oh, that makes me sad. Like there's a generation that will no longer be able to just walk into the Christian bookstore or any bookstore. You know, when Barnes and Nobles are closing down or all the borders. I used to love, I can remember my wife and I going on dates and then at, we'd end the date by just going to hanging out in borders for like 45 minutes and just be like, hey, I'll be over in the sports section. Hey, I'll be over here and we go find. I love that. I, there's something about the bookstore that I just love. Yeah, I, I do agree. And I guess um, I'm torn on this one because I do, I do, I'm a big proponent of like the physical space. Yeah. I think uh, if you haven't been to your local library in a while, go. It'll blow your mind. I love the library. Like the library is way, way better than I remember as a kid. Yep. Um, but I also, like you mentioned, the Jesus Junk stuff, like part of me is a little happy that like maybe, yeah. maybe some of that industry might start to dwindle out. You know, this idea of like we have to stamp across. Or an enthuse on everything for yeah. no reason, and then upsell it by thirty percent like that. <laughs> that to me, I'm just like, Ugh, that's not the that's not the worst thing I've ever heard. But it's it's certainly to me that like kitschy, commodifying, yeah, feels borderline exploitative. Like how can we how can we use this quote unquote brand of Christianity yep. to move products that if they were really great, and that's the thing that I have loved 
over the last 15 years, I feel like there's been a trend towards Christ followers creating really great art. Yeah. Creating really great products with a purpose and and hopefully man, hopefully veering away from the little the kitschy you know flashlight keychain oh but it's got Jesus on yes, it so yes. so we can charge double I'm just like ah that 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 always kind of left a bad taste in my mouth yep yep yeah and so and Lifeway did do something interesting that that I don't know what I think about it. it's a bigger topic for another day but they did get very particular about the books they'd carry so they were making big stands when something happened and they would pull the pull the books from their shelves right. and this and that. And I don't think that's why these are shutting down, but it was always a very interesting move to me. Uh, it felt weird. Like, just like, all right, well now that person, and we're going to eliminate them from the face of everything. And I, I suppose if they had written standards and they had to stick to them, but would uh, you, if you were the guy making the decisions though, if there was some big scandal of a mega church pastor, let's say, or some author that previously had made your company a lot of money and there was something like explode, it was public. It was really, pretty toxic, would you be inclined to like, all right, man, I don't think we need to sell these anymore? So probably not, but I would be more inclined to do that, that than when they were like, hey, because Jen Hatmaker said X, we're pulling all of her books. Like so it felt those, like a little overreacting? Those felt overreacting. Now, if Jen Hatmaker got up and be like, I don't believe anything I wrote and I'm no longer a Christian and this, uh, well, then yeah, maybe. Yeah. But it was more that. You know, I got no problem with them pulling James McDonald for all the stuff or whatever. I wouldn't do it. I don't think I would do it, but hmm. I, I actually understand that more than the well, somebody took a theological stance that's a little different than what we believe, so we're going to pull all their books that were from before and after. So for you, that it's more about, the, it's about the content of the writing yeah. uh, less than moral behavior. I think so. Oh, that's I think it is for me. That's fascinating. When it comes to their books and stuff like that, I think so. That's, I, that is another conversation I want to have sometime. Yeah. I think, I think that would be interesting. Well, coming up next, we're going to interview uh, Dr. Scott McKnight about a new miniseries on the History Channel about the life of Jesus. I think it's going to be absolutely fascinating. That's coming up next on The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hi, friends. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm, a show about creating space for dialogue, for us to disagree at times, to hopefully dive in a little bit rather than leaning apart all the time. And so we'd love to interact with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can go to 1160hope.com. You can also text us your questions or thoughts now. The number is 68683. And then in the message, first type CG for Common Good and then your question or your thought. But I am absolutely thrilled to have on the phone right now with us Dr. Scott McKnight. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. Good to be with you, Brian and Ian. Thank you so much. If you guys don't know, uh, Dr. McKnight is professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary in Lombard, Illinois. He's a world-renowned speaker, writer, and professor, and is recognized authority on the historical Jesus, early Christianity, and the New Testament. His blog, Jesus Creed, is a leading Christian blog. It's fantastic. He's also the author of several books. Can't recommend them enough, including uh, the Jesus Creed. You can find out more at patheos.com slash blog slash Jesus Creed or twitter.com slash Scott McKnight. That's Scott with one T, and we are absolutely thrilled that you're here. Yeah, and uh, excuse me, Dr. McKnight, we're having you on specifically. There's a million things we'd love to talk to you about, maybe some other day, but we want to talk to you about your part of this uh, new eight-part television series called Jesus, His Life, which will premiere on the History Channel in March. And having watched some of the episodes, it's fascinating because it's all from the perspective of the people who would have been around Jesus uh, and it's done so well. And so maybe you could give us a little bit of background about if people watch this, what are they going to see? And then I'm really interested into why you wanted to be involved in this. Um, when I heard the uh, the theory 
or the big picture vision of what they were going to do, that they wanted to look at the life of Jesus through the lens of those who knew him best. Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, yeah, I I like this idea. Mm. Um, And then I've written about a little bit about this in my in my book, The Jesus Creed. And I've always been interested in what John the Baptist thinks of Jesus and what Jesus thinks of John the Baptist, Mm. what people think of John. So (laughs) I'm interested in this question. So I, I was willing to talk with the producers and the writers and the editors and the organizers. And after the conversation, I thought, yeah, I want to I want to help. And so I was asked to evaluate the screenplays. Hmm. Uh, and uh, every one of them was impressive, mm-hmm. uh, although there were suggestions and, you know, not there were some mistakes, but they weren't big ones. Right. And then I was very interested in tone. Hmm. Um, of the commentators, hmm. because not only do they present episodes with some acting and some voices that are very believable, credible, good color, then they have people chiming in with commentary. Hmm. And that was also another layer of where I wanted um, to make sure that I could make a contribution. Well, I was overwhelmed with the quality of the comments, overwhelmed with the um positive nature of it. Hmm. They they affirm what the gospel say. This is not one of these conspiracy theory, right. uh, Holy Week type presentations on arts and entertainment mm-hmm. that uh, are going to get everybody in, in the churches mad. Right. This, is, <laughs> this is going to be a, this is going to be an inspiring set of episodes that I would encourage every church to get behind. Mm, yeah. Pastors and leaders say, hey, get on the TV and watch these. You're going to learn things. You're going to see things. And you're going to see realistic-looking figures. You know, this is not a 7-foot, 8-inch, beautiful Jesus. (laughs) Uh, He's he's a little scrawny. Right. And his beard is not all that beautiful. Right, right. It's it's realistic people. The the image of Peter, he's a tougher-looking guy. Yeah, Yeah. it's it's a good actor. That's, so, that's outstanding. I like it a lot. Okay, so I'm I'm looking at the list of uh, of contributors, and uh, I, I feel like I want to use the word ecumenical here. Like it's a pretty diverse uh, group of voices, kind of weighing in on that. Like how how is that reflected in the actual project? Because you have people uh, from different traditions with different theological bents. Like what what was that like? And and what can we kind of expect uh, in engaging with this this artistry with such a, a rich diversity of influence? Okay, this is this is a uh, I've been asked this a, a few times by people on my Facebook because they look at the list of people involved. Uh, there's different levels of involvement. There are screenplay writers that I don't even know who they were. Mm. I saw names, but right, and, and they are the ones responsible mostly for the research and content. Okay, then someone like me, uh, Miroslav Volf, others. Whoa were responsible for reading the script and making suggestions of whether that we thought it was credible, good, etc. Then there are other people, and this is where the ecumenical comes in, where they bring in voices of commentary. Hmm. And uh, they go all the way from Michael Curry to Joel Osteen oh, no to kidding. Robert Cargill to Ben Witherington. And yet, okay, you know, there's there's times I wrote to the, the people said, do we really have to have that person? <laughs> and they want they want this to be seen 
as having had commentary from lots of different people mm-hmm. across the spectrum of the church. And they did, but they, you know, apart from maybe twice the whole time, I thought, why did we need to say that? Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is not going to be one of these scandalizing yeah. uh, presentations of Jesus. I think people are going to get caught up in the narrative itself, the commentary that's commenting on what the Gospels say, not what people would like to have been happening, some historical commentary. Um, I think people are going to say, this is, I, I want this video, I want this copied, and I want to watch it again every year. Yeah. That sounds amazing. I know, like I said, I I was able to watch the one on Joseph, and I was mesmerized by it. Like, it made me, it just humanized Joseph and Mary for me hmm. uh, to a really deep degree. Yeah. It was yeah. really uh, is that what people can expect in all of them? Just kind of a humanizing of the people that we usually, uh, we don't really think about these people as human beings. They're just kind of characters in the Bible that we grow up with, with our flannel graphs and all of this stuff. <laughs> is one of the goals of this to humanize yeah. these people that we read about all the time? I've done quite a bit of work on Joseph, and that was the first episode I watched, too. Mm. And I thought, wow, this is good. Yes. They, they got a, they've got a really good angle on what this... Uh, this man was like humanizing. Yes. I think the issue normally in stories about Jesus and the gospels is that it's all about Jesus and all about Christian theology and whether it's true or not. Mm. This, these bring to light, you know, every now and then you get a movie where you get some stuff about Peter or Mary, right? This is about people who are largely ignored in most stories of Jesus and they're given um, a body and they're given a story and they become realistic based on what the Gospels actually say. This this is not stuff coming from the Apocrypha yep. from the 3rd and 4th century. It's not coming from legend. It's, it's an attempt to put into a dramatic scene what the Gospels tell about these characters, and they do so many times by creating the tension point in this person's, let's say, Pontius Pilate or, or Joseph, the tension point, and they'll start there, and then they'll go through a bunch of things, and then they'll come back and resolve it later. So there's a narrative arc to mm. each one of these episodes that I found. I told the, the screenwriters, this is very believable to me. So I'm interested then, you mentioned it briefly, uh, for anyone listening who, they might be a pastor, they might be a Christ follower, they might not even consider themselves any of those camps. Can you just... Kind of as we wrap up, talk about what, okay, so what's some vision for how to engage with this? Like, should people be organizing, like, watch parties? Should people be developing small group curriculum? Like, what what are some different ways that you would encourage anyone listening to uh, engage with this content well? Well, I would encourage, uh, first, I would encourage pastors to, and it's unfortunate, pastors don't like to get up and say, you got to watch this, yeah. because they haven't seen it. Yeah, right, right. Uh, and, you know, they're not going to. Not every one of them is going to trust everything I say. They're not going to trust anyone, you know, that much. So uh, I would encourage pastors to give that first couple episodes a really careful watch because mm. what they see there is what they're going to see everywhere. It's very consistent. Mm. The second thing is I would encourage families to watch this with their Bibles open. Mm. Uh, and and I think they're going to say, wow, that's right there in the Gospels. Yeah, right. Wow, this is, this is a presentation— of what is in our Bible. Hmm. This is not an attempt to tell us something. It's not. Furthermore, there's there's very good archaeological scenes or, or at least realistic depictions 
where you get a feel for the um, arid uh, environment hmm. of of the of the Holy Land. I mean, it's it's dusty brown. That's awesome. It's not green, right. lush golf course. Right. <laughs> right. So I think. I would encourage that. I don't know about Bible study curriculums, but I would I would think that people should, could buy this and show it in Sunday schools. Mm. It would be eight weeks, maybe 16. I think there's double episodes. Right. There's eight right. episodes. So eight weeks of really good presentation on Jesus. Uh, the last one is very dramatic about the the death of Jesus. Um, I, th- I thought they did a good job. I mean, awesome. I... I as I watched, it, I kept I kept writing to uh, the people who were who uh, my contacts. I said, "Wow, I'm impressed. This is this is well done. I liked it. I enjoyed." It. My wife watched every one of them with me, and she really liked them. Oh, that's great! That's fantastic. Well, we've been talking with Dr. Scott McKnight about the uh, History Channel premiering uh, a show called a series called Jesus His Life. It's distributed by A and E Networks. Again, it's called Jesus His Life. That's going to premiere. Uh, March 25th at 7 p.m. They'll be showing two episodes back-to-back every week leading up to Easter. And and just personally, anecdotally, Dr. McKnight, thank you so much for all that you do uh, in Chicagoland and the ways mm-hmm. that you've influenced my leadership and our church community. Uh, I'm so immensely grateful for you and all that you do. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And it's on the History Channel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope you can edit that in there. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Yes, sir. It's not on arts and entertainment, yeah. Gotcha. Right on. Thank so, you. Thank you so much, sir. Appreciate you. that. You've been listening to the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show or eleven sixty hope dot com. And uh, Brian, one of the things that you and I have shared anecdotally. I think for as long as we've known each other, uh, and maybe this is a ministry thing, maybe it's not. It's uh, we're both pretty terrible at remembering people's names, and I really it bums me out. Like I'm, I know that I'm laughing, but like it actually deep down, it's really frustrating. Like I could be shaking someone's hand while so meeting true. them, and the moment they say their name, I'm like, oh, I already forgot. Yeah. Like I haven't even ended the handshake yet, and it's already out of my head. Yep. Uh, Carl, it's not you. You and I both have that problem. I'm just kidding. See, I went a different name. See what I did there. <laughs> that was You're like, Who's this? really You're funny. Tired. <laughs> uh, this is one of my greatest frustrations, and one of the things that embarrasses me the most about me, especially on a Sunday morning. And I, I feel guilty about it because I will literally, like you said, talk to somebody in our foyer in our lobby, <laughs> and turn around and immediately think to like it's not like the next day I can't remember their name. It is like five minutes later. <laughs> In our church, we used to, I used to joke to people, when we first started the church, everybody put on a name tag. It's kind of a fun thing to do when you first start a church. Right. And I used to joke to people, we do it because I'm not going to remember your name. <laughs> but would you try to be sneaky and like glance at their name tag while talking to them? Not even sneaky. Like, hello, George. <laughs> Just stare right. For those of you listening. <laughs> I fought with the pause. They could tell. But now, I mean, we got rid of name tags a long time ago, and now yeah, right. I do. I really struggle, and I try to be better and like, okay, let's do this, and I just can't remember. I've gotten better at like putting notes in my phone. Like if I've had an actual serious conversation with someone, but it it's the worst, right? You get to then that moment where they've been at your church oh. or, you, or you've interacted with them for three weeks, right. four weeks. And you're like, well, now it's just embarrassing. I can't ask now. now right? So I'll like, I don't know. I'm, <laughs> it sounds really sneaky. I'll get my wife or somebody else and be like, I need you to go introduce yourself to that person. Right, 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 right. And then come back and tell me, and they'll come back. Like, yeah, it's, uh, it's Stan. Yeah. Okay. Hey, Stan, what's 
What's up? <laughs> oh, so then you're like, me and Stan, old buddies. Yes. Do you have, like, go-to words you use when you don't know their name? Hey, like, bud. What's up, but, uh, bud? Is that your bud, go-to? Buddy, yep. You called me bud a lot. Do you remember my name? <laughs> I do, bud. Okay. <laughs> hey there, hey there hey, buckaroo. What's up, pal? Hey, pal. My name's not buckaroo. What's your go-to? I, I'll go bud. Uh, it. I mean, it totally depends on the environment. I'll say brother and sister a lot. Mm. Um, oh, what's up, brother? Good to see, good to see you, man. And not even hearing me say it right now feels bad. It's probably pretty obvious that I don't actually know. And I feel like people are usually, usually, pretty understanding. Every once in a while, someone someone's on to you, and they'll kind of like cross their arms and like, "You don't remember my name, <laughs> do you?" I'm like, ah, "Why are we doing this right now?" <laughs> I, I clearly feel awful. Uh, but I mean, I, it's something that I want to be better at. In fact, the, the last church that I was at for, uh, for 10 years, there was a pastor emeritus there named Daryl Malcolm who was brilliant at this. And really? he, oh my gosh, he had tactics for like what side of his, of his uh, jacket to put his name tag so that he'd be memorable for other people and like ways that he would memorize people's wow. names. And he was prolific at it. Like I want to be more like that. Yeah. And I do. Th- so I think it's, a, it's, it's intentionality. I don't think it's like, I, I don't think we have some brain disorder we just, well, sorry, Brian and Ian just can't remember names. I'm just, I'm yes. really just not good at it. Do you, uh, made me think at your church, do you wear a name tag or do you wear anything no. that sets you apart for people to know you're the pastor? Nope. Nope. Me neither. Uh, I thought, I mean, it is, I do sometimes forget that I'm like wearing the over the ear microphone. True, true, true. So sometimes if someone's brand new, they're sort of like, oh, that guy does something yep. here. You wear the mic. Hopefully he's not some sociopath just like wearing a microphone. How fun would that be to go visit <laughs> another church and bring an old mic and just wear it and see how people react to I've done stuff you. like that. Like I bought a blue polo and just hung around Best Buy. You were so funny. Like a red polo and hang around we're, Target and people are like, excuse me, where are the diapers? Like, I don't work here. <laughs> we're going to do an entire show someday. I'm putting this on the on the Google Drive now oh, on the whiteboard. We have to do an entire show of the randomest things that you have done. Because if people knew the story you just told me off no, air about, no, 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 no. <laughs> about college and... Uh, I don't think we need to go there. That's not. Well, now I feel like we need to tell the story because now it sounds really shady. <laughs> That's not the topic. We're talking about names. Let's let's st- let's stick with the plot here. I, one of my favorite things about doing the show is hearing your story. Like I would never think about putting on a blue shirt and going to Best Buy. The extra weird part, though, is that I was often doing it by myself. It was like a group of friends got together. I was like, "This would be funny," and then I'll just do it. That is awesome. <laughs> and then not tell anybody. I'm I, I'm realizing that, that I is, there might be something. That is. We need to get your wife in here. So <laughs> Really soon. Really soon. I think she would love that. So anyway, this whole thing about memory, and this yeah. is what it got me. Um, what were we talking about again? <laughs> this whole thing about memory. Nice. Uh, there was a TED Talk about it that was really interesting because it, we were joking a lot about it. This really bothers me about myself, that I don't remember yeah, people's same, names same because here. it feels inconsiderate. Right. It feels like I don't value you enough. Oh, to totally. remember your name. And I right hate now. that. And it, it bumps really, me out. And then, but then you get past the ability to ask them again, and it gets all awkward. So this guy gave a really fascinating t- TED talk, I believe, by the name is Rob Smith. Uh, basically, it says, "Remember people's names once and for all by using this technique from memory champs." And I didn't realize there's people who are memory champs. But then, if you think about it, there are people who can memorize right. pi to you know, to this ridiculous length. Right. Or they can, um, you know, memorize entire decks of cards in order and stuff like that. And so the the guy's point is uh, it's not just some random thing, uh, but that they know some of them. And as you listen to this TED Talk or read this article about it, 
it has a lot to do about strategy. It just yes. has a lot to do about strategy. Well, I, li- I like what he said. He's kind of like, so he's teasing the beginning of the story saying, hey, who, who struggles with this? Uh, and he says, it seems that you have three main options. One, uh, mask the awkwardness by responding with an overenthusiastic, so great. As we just discussed, you and I do. <laughs> right. Or number two, limit yourself to events where name tags are mandatory. Mm-hmm. Or number three, shun society and embark on life as a recluse. <laughs> Which I, I've been tempted by all three of those. But I thought I thought the actual suggestions were like strangely uh, helpful. The first suggestion he gives is to make associations. Uh, the primary approach used by memory champions, again, did not know it was a thing. Um, is to make compelling associations that stick in mind like a like a commercial jingle or something, which I th- is actually something that I do naturally. Like I'll ask, what's the worst pronunciation of your name you've ever heard? Yep. Or like, how do you spell it? Or do you have a nickname? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, sometimes that is that can feel odd. Like why is this person asking me follow-up questions <laughs> about my, my name? name? But it, it actually can be really helpful to actually hold on to, uh, hold on to their name. Yeah, and then they go on to be like, hey, make these connections as entertaining as possible. The more vivid and the more personal your imagery, the likelier it is to stay in your mind. Yeah, right. And so they're, they're basically saying, while creating mental pictures may seem like a childish exercise, no one will be able to see what's going on in your brain. Right. And thank, so, thank God. So make it funny, right? Make yeah. it vivid so that when I see you, it, I immediately remember your name. Uh, the third one is incorporate the person's face into your imagery. Uh, when you use this technique with people you meet, make sure their, their, their face is a part of your mental picture, which again... Seems obvious, but I don't like like you were just saying. When we walk away a minute later, and we've already forgotten. I think a big reason is because we haven't actually stored it away. Yeah. And sometimes we're meeting so many people that we're not actually intentional about doing that. And I think that that idea of actually like taking a snapshot is is really really helpful. Yeah, and then I like how he ends it. He says, "Just remember, there's no shame in asking someone to repeat their name. Yep. Uh, maybe asking them a second time. I mean, a third time, a fourth time, and a fifth time, but." Uh, I do think this is a, you know, it's kind of a funny, lighthearted thing, but I do think this is a big deal. Uh, I think people will feel valued as you remember something as basic as their name, let alone part of their story or part of what you discussed. Um, And so I think we do, not just pastors, uh, our job is somewhat upfront where it it kind of raises the bar a little bit. But I think just in general life, uh, when people know that you remember their name, Yep. And then even remember something about them. I think it says, I value you. Uh, I want you to know that that even our short interaction was important to me enough that I remember it. Well, and we talked about it briefly yesterday, too, the significance of these mundane things. I think mm-hmm. this falls in that category, right? And, like, I often struggle um, in, like, the area of romance where, like, I like the big grand gestures, but I, I'm, I struggle sometimes with, like, the, hey, man, just get off the couch and do the dishes like these small. <laughs> yeah. And I think in the same way, like this is in the same category yeah. of like, man, being intentional about helping people understand that you recognize them, you remember yes. them. You, you've, re- I think that's a small step, um, but it's actually a really significant thing in yes. an age of like digital identity to actually remember somebody's name uh, is, is a little counterintuitive and a little countercultural. And I think a really beautiful way to help people feel valued. Absolutely. Well, uh, coming up next, we're going to have a conversation about the word amen, which yeah. may not sound like much, but it's a word that gets tossed around so mm-hmm. much. So I want to talk a little bit about what does the word actually mean? That's coming up next on The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. Also, Brian... How do you feel about a text line? Love it. <laughs> Love the text line. 
You were so excited about I this. Am, you were I giddy. do feel like the mo- that you're so tired today that it makes me more awake. Like I think I got to pick it like up. You're compensating for my I uh, exhaustion. Like I appreciate that. Text line. Me? <laughs> <laughs> Sound effect of an explosion or something. You can text six eight six eight three, and then in the actual message, type CG for common good first, and then your comment, your question, your anecdote, your pun, your riddle. Other, We've not gotten a riddle yet. Other synonyms. We haven't got. That's true. <laughs> I hope somebody <laughs> takes the time to text a riddle. Be awesome. That, that would make my whole week. All right. So I mentioned uh, earlier. I want to talk about the word "amen," and I, there's a couple of reasons I want to do this because it is one of those words that I think gets tossed around a lot without a real understanding of what it means. Yes. And as pastors, uh, as teachers, really, that's a big part of our role. One of the things that I love about my job is like helping people uh, think deeply about mm. things that maybe they become inoculated to. And sometimes, sometimes it's not a brand new revelation, like, oh, I've never read that verse. Sometimes it's, hey, we've been, we've been understanding this idea wrong for a long yes. time, or this verse doesn't actually mean that. There's, there's, there's a certain joy in the discovery of like, oh, that's, that's what that actually means. So, so we, we share this like not at all as, um, as like a rebuke, but like as a as a reminder, like oh, let's be careful because our words do matter. Mm-hmm. And we talked about that last week, actually. That words create worlds. How we use words uh, affect us, and they affect the community we're a part of. And so, the word "amen" is is very high on the list of things that Christians often say without really knowing what it means. Yeah, and that's I think a great point you make. There are a lot of things that we say as Christians, and there are a lot of things that we do that we have stopped giving thought to. Like yeah. I, I don't know, what do you do? Uh, like if you asked my kids or a lot of us, what does amen mean? They would think it's the what, end. Exactly. <laughs> it's over. It's right. right. Like, okay, I say amen and then God knows I'm done praying <laughs> and we can start eating. Right. Or like I can he, go needs, to sleep. he needs that exactly. like indicator. God's like, oh, oh, that one's over. Okay. That one's Here's done. your blessing that you asked yeah. for. Right. But I remember one of the sermon series I loved early on at our church that we did because there were a lot of people who were unchurched was, uh, I literally did a sermon series. This is, seven, eight years ago called Why We Do What We Do. Nice. So did a Sunday on singing. Why do we sing? Yeah. Did a Sunday on communion. What is that? Did a Sunday on preaching. Yep. Like, And it was really, it was really fun to like stop assuming that we all know why we do things, that we all know what, what we say right. means. Uh, like even to, you know, how do you start a prayer? Dear Jesus, why do you say that? Right, like, who, right, right. What, what does that all mean? Right. I think to tear these back a little bit and go, what does it mean? And I think amen is right there because we do that all the time. Like, you know, you say something, hey, you know, I, I really hope the, the, you know, I'm a big Mets fan. I really hope the Mets win tonight. Amen, man. Amen. Like, what was that? What am I even saying? Classic it, Ian. I'm always cheering on the Mets. <laughs> Thank always, you. you know me I so well. That. I appreciate that. Uh, you know, and so I do think this is helpful to be, get people because I think then it adds it adds texture and context tonight when you're like you, when you do say amen at the end of your dinner prayer or whatever you, you can be like oh wait no I actually know what I'm doing and to hopefully establish a rhythm of doing this regularly mm-hmm. like I you know to, like full disclosure I could sometimes be obsessive with uh, wanting to learn the etymology of a word or a phrase yeah. but it actually has been really helpful particularly in um, communities where you know we're teaching or writing to oh oh shoot I think I've been using this incorrectly yeah. or in a way that isn't really honoring the original intent so yep. so why don't you talk to us a little bit about what does amen actually mean? We talked about some of the ways that it's it's often used, and and we realize there's a, a diversity of, of listeners. Maybe maybe you don't say it. Maybe your tradition says it all the time. But what, what's that at the very core? What what is it actually saying? Yeah, it says uh, that the word amen goes back to the Old Testament when God formed a covenant people for Himself. Okay, so you may have heard the call, and all God's people said, and everyone yells amen, uh, and. 
it says here that both the word itself and its function and speech are closely associated with the idea of truth. It mark it acts as a mark of agreement, as it's often repeated, amen and amen, right? Like it's it's affirming that something that was just said is true. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's that's really at the heart of this word amen is kind of this concept of an affirmation. It's putting a stamp of truth. Like, like we believe this is true. What right. was just said. Okay. So you link two important ideas because the, the word actually is a, a hybrid of two Hebrew words. One meaning affirmation. That's me. It's like me personally yep. saying, yep, I'm on board with that. But you're right. The other, the other half of the hybrid uh, carries with it this idea of like dependability, reliability that it's not just because, you know, you and I, uh, speaking broadly, have probably affirmed things that weren't actually true. Yes. I'm not talking theologically, just in life, like, oh, <laughs> the Mets are going to win the World Series. Amen. I'm affirming that, <laughs> right. I'm affirming that, and it isn't actually true. Yep. The the word, the, the unique hybrid of these two words, meaning not only do I agree, but I'm agreeing and declaring this is dependable, this is reliable. So it isn't just, and the prayer is done, yes. or the song is over. It is saying... We either individually or collectively are pointing at this truth, which uh, again, maybe, I mean, not to overemphasize, but it is also a way of like moving ourselves out of the driver's seat. It is, a, mm. there's something about like the, the glorifying of, of God in this context saying, yes, that, that is truth. I, I depend on that. I affirm that. Um, it, it also carries with it some responsibility though, doesn't it? It's mm. sort of like, yeah, yeah I, it's not a, a, an agreement from a distance. Like, yeah, yeah, that's true over there. And I'm going to go on, you know, life as usual. It's saying, yeah, if that's true, I'm affirming that, then that has implications for the way that I live my life too then. Like, amen, in a lot of ways, is saying I'm in. It's 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 a way of kind of declaring, yeah, that's that's true, and I'm affirming that in my life, which mm. should affect the way that I live my life, I think. Yeah, and then, uh, which begs the question, like, what are the things you don't say amen to, right? Like, uh. if a prayer is full of false theology or untruth, uh, I it is interesting. How would you end that prayer? <laughs> and we're done. Yeah, um, it is over. Yeah, and I. But it is like you said. I think it's saying "Amen" assumes you understand and are aware of what you are affirming in worship. Uh, and I do think this is really important to say "Amen" is to affirm. Uh, yeah, I just think you put it really well. It's to affirm that what was just spoken uh, is true um, and is and is we are putting our faith behind it, hmm. right? And so I was reading on the Patheos blog here. It says, you should never say amen to anything you are not certain about or are not in complete agreement with because doing so is to be speaking with hypocrisy. Oh, it wow. just raises the bar of it. Well, and that's I think that's kind of the point. That's yeah. a good summary, like raising the bar of some of the things that we say often all the time without even really thinking about it, right? Like we, you know, one of the habits that I got into um, in teaching was to say things like, and all God's people said, yep. and people said, amen. Realizing now, man, there was probably people in those chairs that are like, I don't, I'm not team Jesus yet. Like yeah. I just, this is my first time and everyone around me just declared amen. I didn't know that's the thing we're supposed to say. That can be really isolating too. So it becomes... I'm not saying don't do that. Yes. You know, I actually still say that sometimes. Can I get an amen? Yep. But I'm usually saying that sometimes. Like, um, I'm a little cheeky when I say that. Like, I'm realizing even in this conversation, man, no, no, amen. Is this if it is this hybrid between both affirmation and dependability? Mm. It, it is that that is a that's a declaration with some with some gravity behind it. And I don't want to be flipping about that, you know? Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, oftentimes we'll have these conversations and my mindset will change as we're talking because I, 
at the beginning of this, I want to be like, yeah, but it's also taken on some new cultural things. It's fine. Like it's sure. Can I get an amen? You know, that kind of stuff. It's fine. But maybe it's not. Maybe there's actually greater value in returning it to its higher place of of meaning. Right. And holding it in that way and going, you know what? Maybe I won't be flippant about it. Maybe it, it can. It, it Could that be could that be a little fundamentalist or could that be a little? Yeah, maybe. But maybe that like we've been saying, there's power in words. So let's give the word back some power that maybe our culture, our church culture has drained from it. I think, man, that's that's a good call to action at the end of maybe every one of these segments. Yeah. Words yeah. have power. Let's be mindful about the power they wield, both for good and for not so good. Yeah. And to be careful about not only the ways that we use them personally, but being in people that remind each other, like, yeah, that, that word has significance. Yeah. That word has power. Let's be mindful about the ways that we do and don't use that. I think that's a fascinating brilliant call to action, man. We've been listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com. The show is podcasted, and we also now have a text line. Boom. We did it. We made it. You can text 68683. That's 68683. And then in the actual text, first write the letter CG for Common Good, and then your question, your comment. It doesn't even have to be on stuff that we've done. It can be suggestions for stories to do in the future. We would, we would love to interact with you in that way. If there's topics or articles or stories that you think, man, this would be really good for the show, uh, please, please send them our way. We would love to uh, engage with you in that way. Absolutely. Now, there's this article uh, from NPR, and the headline is uh, so interesting to me. It says, Democratic candidates uh, embrace the risk of radical ideas. Yes. What's going on there? So, you know, the the um, the presidential field is starting to form on the Democratic side. And what's really interesting is uh, it's it's much more radical than it's like there's a race to go as far left as possible. Sure. And so even some guys who aren't even that centrist, say Joe Biden or whatever, seem like they're two in the middle. And then they're starting to realize they've got to go further. And it's like this race. And this is from NPR. They're they're embracing, it says, the risk of radical ideas, things that, quite frankly, most of us are uncomfortable with because they've got to, uh, in their primary, speak to their base. And it's like they're trying to top one another Hmm. as they go from everything from getting rid of the filibuster to the one that stuck out to me was now there's this move to eliminate the Electoral College, uh, which has been, you know, around forever in our country. And uh, I would say is a bad idea to get rid of it. But now they're all doing it. You see it when they talk about uh, health insurance. Like there's certain lines they all have to have in order to even be considered in the primary that will then come back to hurt them uh, later. But, you know, the the most striking thing to me is, do you remember back in 2016, all the way back in 2016, (laughs) Bernie Sanders got all this traction for being 
like kind of the extreme candidate, right? Yep. Like he was out there, and now he doesn't feel that way anymore. Like mm. he's back in the race four years later saying the same things, and he feels like the the least radical, or not the least, but normal compared to the rest of them. And before we just say this is a Democratic issue, this is just mirrors what happened in the 2016 Republican primaries, right. where everybody had to run the other way and everything, you know, we're building walls and we're doing this and we're doing that. And everybody had to agree to it or they mm. were like, oh, you're soft and they couldn't win. Um, and so it's just interesting, uh, the culture that we now live in, that in everything we do, the answer is at the polls. Everything is like everything's at its most extreme. And so not like at the voting so, polls. You mean like the extremes? Correct. Right. OK, correct. just to be clear. P-O-L-E-S, right? right? Like it's people are having to run to the extremes with everything. And I feel like that's true in the church world now. Like you've got it's all about being heard now. And it's only the most radical ideas that are heard and now being embraced. And so uh, it's quite frankly, I don't think it speaks well for our culture going forward, but. It's going to be really interesting to see, uh, to watch this presidential um, kind of season form because the, the Democratic people have to look so anti-Trump and so against everything he thinks uh, that, that they're going to get pushed to some limits that most of us are going to go, really? Hmm. Like, you think that's a good idea <laughs> to, to do X, Y, or Z? And I don't know. It's going to be interesting. Do you, do, you, do you think that this extremism is new? you think this is a new development in culture and society? I think that it's new in the sense of it feels like that's their only pathway to be to like getting the nomination. Like and you uh, that you don't think that was the case 30 years ago? I don't. I don't. I could be wrong. Uh, but I don't think so. I think now um it is the, it's so much harder to be heard amongst all the noise that anyone who I mean just watch like the morning shows or cable news or whatever and uh or drive time shows Yes, exactly. <laughs> There's no room for nuance anymore. Hmm. There's no room for compromise anymore. There's no room for, hey, you know what? I'd like to reach across the aisle and see what, what we can work out with the Republicans or a Republican to say that with a Democrat. They now all have to get up and be like, I will block everything he wants to do or I will stand against everything that this person wants. Hmm. And everything is the extremes. And then the question for you know, most, I would think, the sober-minded people is how are we ever going to get anything done? Hmm. And, uh, you know, there's this running to your base and trying to get everything going. And I don't know, maybe maybe people could text us and tell me I'm wrong about this because <laughs> I don't think it was like this even, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Really? Um, and there's a million reasons, right? Cable news, what we just said. Yep. Uh, you don't want to get ripped by Fox News or Rush Limbaugh or on the other side, you know, Rachel Maddow or MSNBC right. or whatever else. And so everything now is like yelling across the aisle, going to your extreme, winning your base. And now we are the question, the, 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 the $64,000 question is, how are we ever going to get anything done? And I think we feel that our government keeps shutting down. They just yell at each other and it, it all feels, you know, and it feels crazy like the, the Democrats, quite frankly, are are getting or are electing people or following people who are borderline or just flat out embracing socialism while the Republicans I'm deep diving politics here, man. This is like a first one. I'm just I'm just listening. While the Republicans <laughs> feel like they're embracing, you know, really hardline conservatives who, you know, want to build walls and take things away and whatever else. Yeah. And there's no room in the middle for people to go, you know, they've got some good points over there. We've got some good points. Maybe let's sit down at the table and talk this out. I worry about our culture because there there is certainly not a spirit of of 
compromise and negotiation of trying to get things done. And, and it, I don't think down the road it looks good for where we're, where we're heading with that. I, I think you're right that, that nuance doesn't seem very fashionable right now, yeah. and that's not just in politics, in my opinion. Yep. Uh, but I do think back to a story we did early in the show. I think the title was something like, There's Nothing Virtuous About Finding Common Ground. Mm. And the whole kind of premise of that story, of that article, was that sometimes you need to run to the extreme. Sometimes yes. major shifts in policy and culture have been because people have protested. We talked even a little bit yesterday about this idea of, like, our kids protesting, like, standing up for, yep. hey, this is not a reach-across-the-aisle issue. This is not a uh, let's-find-a-middle-ground, a commonplace. This this is, no, we like, we need to shut this down. We need to uh, flood the streets. I, you know, it's it's... It's easier from the perspective of history to celebrate the protests that actually had good cultural yep, change. Yep, yep. But I think when you're in the midst of it, extremism can feel really um, unhelpful, to use your word, right? Like, oh, I don't mm-hmm. think we're going to get anything done. Um, but sometimes I think that is how stuff gets done, is by people not compromising and not saying, oh, we're going to meet somewhere nicely in the middle and saying, oh, this is a this is a hill I'm going to die on. Yep. We have to make this a priority. So, like, for me, it's that's a tension to hold because yep. it can't just be about, oh, let's all come together and find a squishy totally. middle. Totally. I guess what I'm trying to figure out is why is what is now normally embraced so much more radical than it used to be on both ends? Like, that's what that's the interesting dilemma or the conversation for me. Like, why is the Democratic Party becoming increasingly socialistic? Like, that's is that the trend of Democrats in general across the country? Or is that is there something else in the system that is that that that's the type of people who have gotten raised up in the and the Republicans on the other side? Why is it all, you know, not every Republican five or 10 years ago was yelling, build a wall. Uh, yeah, right, right? right. And not every Democrat five or 10 years ago was going, let everybody in yeah. or let's you know, universal health care stuff. There was some, there was a middle ground uh, that people actually believed more. Set. Maybe it's not a middle ground in the set. Maybe it's not even helpful to talk in terms of compromise. Maybe it's that it feels like there's nobody in the middle anymore going, hey, maybe there's some nuance to this where where it, the actual answer is kind of here in the center. Yep. It's like there's no more center anymore. And I want to go, why is that? Like wh- where'd that center go? Because if it were most of the people I talk to, myself included, live in that center. Yeah, We think that there's good ideas, uh, you know, that there's kind of a hodgepodge of ideas and, and it's in the center, but I don't think center people can get elected anymore. Yeah, I, I mean, think, I think you're probably right in some areas. I do. I am interested in the idea of bringing nuance and complexity back mm-hmm. um, because you and I are not, we're also not policy creators. Um, right. That's not a role. So, you know, there is some freedom, I guess, in that. Um, but I also remember like in 2016, you referenced, it was so difficult to in any way criticize one candidate yep. without the assumption being that I was in love with the other. True. And I won't even mention names because that, that happened on both sides. If you poke a little bit at one person's policy, people are like, oh, so you love their opponent? Like, yes. wait, why is that the only other option? Get you red, make America great. <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying in general, like, why, why yeah, is the yeah. assumption, oh, if he's in any way dissatisfied with this position, then he must be completely on board with the opposing position. And like that tendency for me seeing that and again a lot of this is happening on facebook which is not a great forum for those discussions but i thought oh this is interesting we're losing our ability to think critically without jumping to assumptions and conclusions about yep. like the the whole width and depth of this person's Absolutely. perspective which is um, maybe not a helpful trend for us and in I general th- i think it's the whole thing we've talked about a million times the outreach culture the twitter culture the facebook culture everything's a hot take and that's this all plays into it. I think the politics we have now is a result of these moves in our culture rather than it being vice versa.
Well, coming up next, we have a uh, story from Scott McKnight, and the, the headline is this. Hey, preacher, is that sermon really yours? <laughs> so this, this may this may <laughs> preach just to Brian and I. <laughs> so you can stick around for that as we have a meltdown on the air here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. We're going to take a deep dive in some topics, some that we maybe know more about than others. Yes. Uh, but in general... The idea is to create some space for dialogue, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show. You can go to 1160hope.com. The show is podcasted, and now we have a text line. You can text 68683. That's 68683. And then in your actual text, first write CG for Common Good. And then your questions, your thoughts, if you have suggestions for future stories or articles or topics, uh, we would love to hear from you. And this this is one, honestly, that I'm a little nervous to dive into because mm-hmm. I'm I'm not totally sure that I have my head around the complexity of this conversation. Why don't you uh, set us up here a little yeah, bit? Yeah, I certainly don't. It's uh, Scott McKnight, who we just had on the show. He's so uh, he's so, so good. good. <laughs> so good. Uh, at the Patheos blog, uh, his blog, Jesus Creed, uh, he wrote a uh, a blog just titled, Hey Preacher, Is That Sermon Really Yours? And you read that, you're like, uh-oh, here we go. Here we <laughs> I go. I mean, not uh-oh. Do you think uh-oh? That's your first response? Yeah. yeah. Oh, no. boy. <laughs> and it's an interesting conversation. Like, what... Uh, should your church expect when you get up to preach, uh, are 100% of the words yours, uh, or is it okay to pirate an, an entire sermon from, you know, Rick Warren's website or whatever? I'm going to say no. Because That's what we okay. do, right, I'm just trying to give the polls okay, here. I right? just want to make, make it clear. What we do, what we do have at our fingertips now is most of the best preachers, you can look up the transcript of their entire sermons, right? right like right. It, You don't even have to transcribe it. The transcripts are there. And, uh, but, you know, what are you what are you telling your congregation? Uh, and so McKnight kind of goes in on that um, and says, and I was going to say, this is interesting. I had a friend of mine once who doesn't work in the pastor world who said, I don't think there's anything wrong if a pastor just uses other people's sermons. Huh. And I was like, what? In their entirety? In their entirety. Wow. He's like, I think it'd be great. And I said, I think you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, did, I am with you on that one. Because as McKnight says in here, it eventually, the eventual foundational question is what is a sermon? Right? Yeah, right. Is it, is it just a great speech no. given or is it something greater that, that the, you, you know, the spiritual leader of this congregation, the pastor uh, who has been in God's word through the week and kind of mulling this over and now, uh, through much prayer and preparation, basically has a word from God for the congregation. Is it something that high, uh, or is it just like a nicely crafted speech? And what I like what McKnight does here is, you know what, pastors, uh, he gets really practical. Basically, like, acknowledge the other resources you've used. Yeah, cite your sources. Cite your at sources. At the very least, right. And be like, hey, uh, don't be like, hey, you know, I was reading you know, my Bible. And this came to me be like, Hey, you know what? I was reading this book by Scott McKnight. Right. And, right. And here's what McKnight said about this. Your congregation, they're going to be like, great. You're reading books for this. You're preparing. Right. Right. Don't, yeah, there's not value lost. There's not credibility lost yes. by saying I read this somewhere else. This wasn't just simply, in fact, I remember years ago, I had just started a ministry and uh, a pastor pulled me aside and said, Hey, um, do you want a preaching trick? And I was like, I already don't like the way this sounds. <laughs> and he said, sometimes I'll write something on a pad of paper read it back to myself so that in the sermon I can say, oh, I read somewhere that. He's like, isn't that clever? And I was like, that feels deceptive, actually. That that doesn't feel good at all. But that was, he he really thought this was like a nice trick to bestow upon me. And it's funny that you bring up the book thing because, ironically, 
<clears throat> this weekend at Community, we're starting a series called Open based on Scott McKnight's book <laughs> uh, called Open to the Spirit about the Holy Spirit. So That's awesome. that was one of the things that um, I, I think we're really, really mindful of. Like, hey, let's be sure to really give credit where credit is due. A lot of these concepts and ideas uh, have been have been birthed from reading his work. But I, I also think it's – if I could just brag on our process a little bit because yeah. uh, we've talked about it a little bit. We are uh, a multi-site church throughout Chicagoland that does in-person preaching at every site. So that's a little unique, um, and uh, and I'm not pitting one style against the other, but all of our sermons are written collaboratively. So not yes. only is every individual sermon written by two people, but it's then brainstormed by like five, six, seven other people, and then there's multiple edits, and I'm a part of that process, and we have um, this really brilliant arts team that helps kind of like weed through some of it. So, so often... Um, there is a case where somebody is delivering a message that you know when the, when the final manuscript is made available, uh, all of the all of the uh, the communicators are uh, encouraged to you know quote make it their own. Don't don't just take this manuscript and then just recite it. Like you need to really embody it. But it's been written and crafted by you know five, six, seven, eight different diverse yeah. voices, so that by this by the end of the process, it's actually a really beautiful kind of mosaic representation of the community as a whole. So yeah. so it, it it does it does get a little tricky for us because um like so this I saw this debate online between some friends of mine and uh, one of my buddies uh, I think put it brilliantly. He said the pastor teacher of a community of faith should be actively involved in what's coming out of their mouth for the formation of the people they're responsible for discipling. So I think that that speaks to like hey you can't just steal verbatim yep. some sermon whether it's a part of your church or otherwise like you're saying um, because it's missing, I think, the greater definition of what does it mean to actually pastor. Being a pastor, mm-hmm. uh, I think, by definition, is more than just simply giving a TED Talk. It's more than just the dissemination of information. Yes. And if the whole goal is just entertainment and engagement, I, th- I think I think we've lost the plot on that. Yeah. And, and interestingly, for, for smaller churches, I love how your church does that. I think it's Thanks. it's brilliant and it's fascinating. But you know, you've also been in smaller churches have, where you're yep. going, you know what, I don't have research assistants. I don't have other people right. to collaborate with. And so a temptation becomes, I will collaborate with the Internet. Because, right, right smaller church pastors tend to have a lot more. Uh, you've you've often said your job is to do less things, like, better. Better, right. Basically. Right. Whereas uh, I was talking to a smaller church pastor yesterday, and he described himself as Ben Zobrist, if you know the comps. Yes, like, yes, right. Play lots of positions, do right. lots of things totally. well, but nothing great um, in terms of Major League Baseball. But... <laughs> Um, but that then becomes you, the, the sermon can really get pushed to Thursday afternoon, Friday morning, and right. just gets going. And there is a temptation out there to be like, okay, if I not just use this as research, but I pull, maybe if I just pull that paragraph or I pull, sure. I totally get it. And um, there needs to be some accountability to that. Yeah. And uh, I think McKnight makes a great point here. He basically says it's deceitful uh, to basically preach other people's stuff. And not give credit. But give credit for the ways that it's influenced your sermon. Oh, yes, Because totally. then in the age of the internet, now it pushes your people to be able to go look up this, per, you know, Tim Keller or Scott McKnight right. or whatever. Like, hopefully out of your sermon series, people are going to buy McKnight's book and go I'm read I'm going to encourage them to, absolutely. And, and they'll realize, okay, there's good stuff here. And another little secret that is not, uh, that is not surprising is that the, if you're a pastor out there and you are stealing sermons, you'll never preach them well. Because they're not yours. They're oh, not totally. coming from from God's work in your life. Like that's what ideally a sermon is. It's you've been able to 
you've been able to stew and marinate, right? Like using uh, some good food language there. You've been able to marinate in this text yeah. for a week, two weeks, and, and you've interacted with God and you've interacted with this text and, and it's done a work on you that you're then talking to your congregation about. If you're just going, well, what did Andy Stanley say last week? Right. It'll, the, there's, it's going to be shallow. Well, there's I, not going to be anything there. I think the harder thing to decipher, it's one thing uh, if someone's stealing word for word someone else's manuscript, right? right? You, especially with the internet, you can find that out pretty quickly. The other thing that I find kind of convicting came from a conversation early into my, my preaching ministry. I had a, a mentor that knew me really well, and he came to see me preach. And uh, when we were done, he kind of had this smirk on his face. And he said, you've been listening to a lot of blank and blank. And he totally nailed it. And I said, how did you know that? And he said, because that's exactly what you sounded like. So I didn't, I, had, I didn't steal anything yep. uh, at all, but I was like, I didn't know my voice yet. And I didn't have the confidence that honestly, if I could just be vulnerable, I didn't have the confidence that God had wired me specifically yes. for this specific community at this specific place and time. Yes. So I felt like I needed to embody these, these other pastors that were doing great work in the world. Like yep. I don't, I, I'm, I'm not ashamed of that part, but I was like, mannerisms and word usage and he's like yeah you need to you need to really step into who god has made you to be and i was like like a good mentor right like just like cut right to the heart that was that was so convicting for me and i think i did the exact did you really oh my gosh and i'll just say it i was (laughs) listening to a lot of matt chandler and Mm. i literally i think matt chandler is maybe my favorite preacher to listen to Mm. if you want if you're looking for someone to listen to to podcast whatever uh after ian and i you know then (laughs) oh gosh uh, leave a review at the Common Good podcast. Well I done. remember I kept saying, if you've listened to Chandler, you know, I literally found myself saying, are you tracking? And I was like, oh, I got to stop listening to him because <laughs> that's what he says you over tracking? and over again. <laughs> are you tracking? And I'm like, that's not my language. That's yeah. not how I speak. Yep. Um, and so, you know, part of this is for churches also, especially smaller churches, give your pastor the space to write, to, to interact with the text and have the time to do good sermons. But, um, you know, I, I, I'm convicted by McKnight's stuff here to just say uh, where there needs to be credit given, have the confidence to give credit, point people to the bigger works, uh, but then do the hard work that sermon hard sermon writing's hard. It can be lonely. Yeah, uh, it could take work, but but that's what we've been called to do. Well, and, and before we wrap up too, a sort of a segue into what we're going to talk about next too. You'd mentioned earlier, like, hey, sometimes the only thing you can collaborate with is the internet. I yep. don't think that's true. Yep, pastors of small churches, it's it's tough. But seeking people out, making the time, build it into your budget for coffee. It doesn't have to be other pastors. It doesn't even have to be other writers. Just having people say, hey, this is like a really rough skeleton I have right now. Would you just give me your thoughts? Give me your feedback. Mm, like, it is such a helpful way to actually like pastor and shepherd your actual community well by inviting people into that. And they may not have every theological T cross, but they're going to give you really helpful, practical insight into, hey, let me just tell you how this hits me yep. as just someone who's a part of your community. Absolutely. Which I think segues well when I talk about next. The uh, the headline is this, the disturbing temptations of pastoring in obscurity. Mm. That's coming up next on The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, a show designed, at least, to be a space for conversation, for dialogue, to enter into the mess, the gray, the stuff that doesn't have easy answers, and sometimes, oftentimes, doesn't tie up with a nice pretty bow, because uh, that's how life is. That's how a conversation and dialogue, I think, uh, was intended to go, to sometimes say, you know what? I don't know. I want to get back to you. And we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. 
You can also go to 1160hope.com, plus the show is podcasted, and you can text us your questions at 68683. That's 68683, and then in the actual message, just type CG for Common Good first, and then your question, your thought, your idea, if you have a story or an article you'd love for us to discuss. A pun. A pun, a riddle, an anecdote, other synonyms. Questions with your homework. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that one's going to be for Brian. I am not. I'm going to be useless in homework help. And, uh, okay, so I mentioned a little bit earlier uh, this article from Christianity Today, The Disturbing Temptations of Pastoring in Obscurity. Yes. And uh, I think this is going to be a great conversation. It's written by a guy by the name of Matt Erickson, who is currently the senior pastor of Eastbrook Church in Milwaukee. Uh, and Erickson, it's a fascinating article of Christianity Today. Uh, he talks about, really at the heart of this conversation, is this, uh, this desire for pastors uh, and, parenthetically, everybody uh, to be known and to be admired, to this pull towards celebrity. And so in the pastor world, it's to, it's to go to the big church and have the big platform. But he had that and then went to a smaller church plant and mm. started like taking great pride in being the smaller guy right, right, like, right. who wasn't the celebrity pastor. And now he's back at a bigger church. And really what this article gets at is that, um, that on both sides, there's just this danger of pride yeah, that, right, that is right. just... Uh, we want more people to know about us. And I love the way he closes it because he talks about how many of us have preached um, about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is, is uh, you know, he's the big deal before Jesus. We forget that John the Baptist had followers. He had, if, if it were today, he would have had paparazzi around him, right? John the Baptist <laughs> was a big deal. And, and then his people start going from John the Baptist to Jesus and then, some of John the Baptist's people are like, hey, what about this? Well, you know, this is crazy. And John the Baptist famously says in John chapter 3, he must increase, I must decrease. And we've all talked about that as pastors, right? Like that needs to be the way that we live our lives. But yet in practice, it it tends to be just if we're going to lay our cards on the table, it tends to be like, I want the accolades. I want people to say good things about me. And this pride can be really insidious as a pastor. And then I think it plays out in all professions and in all walks of life. And so he references a book that I, I have actually really, really appreciated over the years by uh, Henry Nowen called In the Name of Jesus. Mm. If you're listening, if you've not read it, I, I really do recommend it uh, a lot. But it actually makes me think of a book that uh, that Dave Ferguson wrote and uh, has been talking a lot about this last year called uh, Hero Making. I'm talking about don't be the hero, be the hero maker. Don't don't be um, don't be on the stage, be the stage. Yes. Like that idea of like pouring into other people rather than seeking your own celebrity is like such so an good. important shift. And there's there's two paragraphs that uh, to me were so brilliantly written in this article. He said, leaving the limelight of high profile ministry was supposed to remove the pride from my heart or so I thought, Mm -hmm. but my heart didn't feel dramatically different in this new setting. As the old saying goes, wherever you go, there you are. I thought I had escaped the temptations of celebrity ministry culture, but there were just as many temptations in my new setting of relative obscurity. And this, this to me where the rubber hits the road. So my impulse towards obscurity had become something less noble, a desire for recognition through reverse optics. I smugly stood at a distance and criticized celebrity pastors with their new books and accompanying curriculum being hawked in the household of God as if there were money changers in the temple. I was just waiting for an opportunity to yeah. turn over their tables. And I mean, mm. I still appreciate the honesty of like his he, he can't he, he was at this massive congregation and then and then was at this smaller plant and and was realizing that, like you we were saying, there's this great temptation for pride in both contexts. Yes. Ne- neither end of that spectrum is immune to that that tug of the human heart. And I think 
Um, that is such an important thing to recognize. Yeah, we've talked about this before. That you know, we all say the right things. Like I preach a sermon, and I want God to receive the glory. I want people to grow in faith, but I also want people to tell me how good a job I did. Yeah, right. <laughs> and these kind of public roles are interesting in that way. Like, hey, uh, t- tell me good things about me, and give me words of affirmation. And it's not just a big church, small church thing, but like you said. Those people in small churches or medium-sized churches can have just the same amount of pride. Like, look at me toiling yeah. for the Lord in this smaller to- church. Yes, totally. Look at me, you know, I've got my own kingdom or whatever else. As much as it could be with the guy who's got, or the girl who's got the big platform and is and, and has all the thousands of people to talk to. Uh, and, I, and what I find interesting about this author, Matt Erickson, is he's had both. Yeah, uh, he's had both, and he said I struggled with pride in both of them. Yes, right. Which I appreciate that vulnerability yep. because it does it does sort of. It elevates the importance to be mindful regardless of your context. And this, maybe this whole story is like a little, a little myopic for, for pastors. But I, I do think you're right, though, that regardless of where you're at in your life, pay attention to these tendencies because, yeah, you, you can be, there's pitfalls in both extremes, professionally, relationally, socially, whatever. Yes. And I think in, in ministry in particular, this idea of how, how we understand, you know, quote unquote opportunity mm-hmm. or, um, or reach, um, or platform, yep. you know, sometimes I've mentioned the story before of, you know, a, just a couple of weeks at Naperville, um, a local pastor who had walked with the community for 40 years and had never really grown past, you know, 120, 125. And with tears in his eyes asking me, what am I doing wrong? Mm. And I'm like, man, that grieves my heart that something in our our church culture has led you to believe that you're some kind of failure because you faithfully walked with your community for for four decades but because you didn't reach some number in your head mm-hmm. like he he wasn't just looking for tips like this was a guy that was like broken like wow. oh man I've 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 traded my life for something that didn't actually amount to anything and I'm like ugh we got to go after that like I think that that's something it's not just about like oh if you're listening check your own heart like we I think the encouragement to say let's let's counteract this culture of mm-hmm. bigger is always better or um, bigger is the devil. I don't. Yep. Both of those extremes are so unhelpful. I think uh, in a intelligent dialogue because it it, le- it just leads to places that I, I think um, aren't helpful in general. I love when I meet pastors, and that's we're in the pastor world, right? But it could be businessmen, it could be teachers, it could be whatever. But in our world, I love when I meet pastors of any size, church, big or small who are so secure of who they are in Christ that it just oozes out of them. Yeah, right. Like right. they, they just literally are like, you know what, you know, I got a big church to, you know, but that's God's doing to God be the glory. I'm, I'm just playing my part or they got the small church and they're like, Hey, I'm toiling. I'm, I'm doing it with these people. Right. And that if they were to lose their job tomorrow, they would still be secure that they're loved in Christ. Like that's what this all comes down to. And I, I like that you always bring it back to being secure in our identity in Christ and our acceptance in Christ that, Big church, small church, senior pastor, assistant pastor, plumber, whatever else it might be, uh, we are secure in our identity in Christ and that we don't need to search out the accolades of other people. We often joke that I'm a words of affirmation guy, right, to asking people to, right. hey, text us nice things, hey, do this. But I actually do struggle with that in, yeah. my, in my main job. Right. Like, I want people to tell me I'm a good pastor. Yep. I want people to tell me this, and there's some insecurity in that. That all of that is done away with, with the more and more you understand who you are in Christ and that it's not dependent upon how you perform. Uh, and that's easier said than done. But I think as everybody out there can begin to grasp that and live in that, it comes with a freedom 
uh, that I think we all search for. It's just unbelievable that, but the hard part is getting there, getting past your pride, getting past your insecurities and realizing there's nothing bigger than, than your identity in Christ. Right. And th- this idea of identity is not just a, it's not just a, a switchy flip, right? right? It isn't like, oh, I woke up uh, today and now, now I'm totally secure. It's, it's about practices and rhythms and making small good choices, right? And like I even, you know, to think about Dave and John and the work that they've done in Chicagoland over the last 30 years mm-hmm. um, to to give influence away, yeah. to elevate other people, to give resources away. We're starting these things in Chicago now called Catalyst Communities where we're resourcing and collaborating with other churches in the area. I think of the New Thing Network that we yeah, started. unbelievable. Church planning network of thousands of churches across the globe. They're like regularly giving accolades and props and opportunities to other people rather than just kind of continue to build their their name and brand. And I think... You know, we talk a lot uh, at community about speed of the leader, speed of the team. Yeah. Like you, you're. I, I don't think either of them just came out the womb thinking that. I think yes. they were cultivated by parents who also understood this and poured into them and cultivated, and they've in turn done that with us. And I, I just think it, it is it is less sexy, less glamorous. And it's like, hey, just be secure in your identity. It's like, yep. no, no. It's it starts by being mindful of these little tiny ways that mm. our heart is drawn towards pride or recognition or accolades. Like, be mindful of, man, am I? Am I am I being the platform for somebody else right now? This yes. whole idea of hero making is like he gives really practical steps. Of like here's how you actually do it. It's not just hey go be a hero maker. Yep. It's no no this this takes work because you're yep. standing against the the flow the natural flow yep. of most of our hearts. And to be strategic about that is I think sometimes where a lot of us struggle because like oh I just I don't want to be like that. So I'm just going to pray really hard that I stop exactly. being like that. Like no be be intentional about kind of putting that to death, you know? Yeah, and it could come with worldly loss, if you will. John yeah, right. the Baptist, right? Go back to the Bible. John the Baptist was losing followers. He was losing influence. He was losing kind of his place in the pecking order. And he said, no, that's my calling. That's mm. what I've been called to do. To I must decrease so that he can increase. And that, you know, I love the Hero Maker stuff. I read Hero Maker while on sabbatical this summer. Oh, really? And uh, yeah, and it was... It's great. It's the concept, but it's it's not a mind blowing concept. Hmm. It's just really hard to do. It's really hard to do. You and don't read. You don't read it. And go. Oh my gosh! I've never thought of this. Right. What you do is you read it and go. I'm not sure I could pull this off. And so it becomes really practical. It becomes a leadership book about you know some steps. But it, it starts with a heart issue. It starts with an identity issue. Totally, totally agree, man. And to give props to Warren Bird as well. That guy's yes. that guy is brilliant. I think yep. the two of them together created something really beautiful. Well, coming up next, the way that we like to end the show each and every day is a little bit of insanity that we found online. Not that we found, by the way, that our producers <laughs> found that we will read sight unseen as a way to kind of wrap up the show. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com. Plus, you can text us 68683, and then in the actual message, type CG for common good. And then your question, your thought, a story that you want us to do. Maybe you even found something insane on the interwebs. That is how we like to end the show. Yes. <laughs> I put like in air quotes, by the way, because <laughs> it's getting more and more terrifying. We've it given is. the authority and power over to the producers. They choose stories for us. But if we say something wrong, it's going to be our job. That's right. right. Just just to say it out loud, they're face on on the desk. We're going to flip them over, sight unseen, and uh, try to hold it together. So, Brian, why why don't you kick Uh, us off? Oh, and I go first. We're going to California. Sure we are. American Airlines flight diverted because its bathrooms were unusable. 
An American Airlines flight from San Francisco to New York was diverted to Chicago because its bathrooms were unusable. American Airlines told Business Insider that the issue with the flight's bathrooms occurred close to Chicago. We never want to disrupt our customers' travel plans, and we're sorry for the trouble this diversion has caused. Uh, But there were no working bathrooms, and that was a problem. Yeah, that is problematic. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. (laughs) I love that. I love that movie. So good. All right, Michigan, my home state. Man throws shoe with revolver inside a cockroach. <laughs> Shoot self in foot. I love oh. that you started with my home state. Yeah, there I, we I, go. I clearly had not read the headline. A man was a has a bullet wound after his uh, after he attempted to throw his shoe with a loaded gun in it at a cockroach. Police say WDIV reported that a 50 year old man was in his home in Detroit when he saw the roach. The man who used a wheelchair threw his shoe at the roach. It had a revolver inside, <laughs> and when it fell out. It <laughs> discharged a shot, shot him in the foot. According to police, the man's condition is not known. Who throws a shoe? Honestly. <laughs> I want to know who has a loaded revolver in, in their, their shoe. shoe. Yeah, I don't. That just seems like a bad practice. That's, and who do you know it's there? Like you pick up your shoe. It, uh, I don't know. Yeah, maybe you just had a rough night, man. I am don't I, know. Am I asking for too much from uh, to understand these stories? I think so. Nebraska. Friends find fridge full of beer while looking at flood damage on farm. Oh, that sounds about right for Nebraska. What two men say they found in a field near Linwood, Nebraska, has them gaining fame they never expected on social media. Kyle Simpson and his friend were surveying flood damage on property where Simpson runs a duck hunting club. Cool. They've been working all day trying to clean up the mess behind the floodwaters just as they were getting to leave, getting ready to leave. Stouffer noticed something lying in a muddy field. They thought it was a black box. Uh, Stouffer said otherwise. It was actually a mini fridge, and it was a mini <laughs> fridge full of beer. Simpson couldn't believe it. I'm, I, I feel like I when the drop's going to be beer and Simpson here. Feels like I've. <laughs> I said, yeah, right. There's not a fridge of beer, but it was fully stocked with Bush Light and Bud Light, about three cases worth, and it still had ice in the freezer. Simpson texted the pictures to a friend who posted them on Facebook. Since then, it has received thousands of likes. Uh, and uh, social media posted more than just Garner laugh. It got Simpson in contact with the fridge's owner. After talking to the owner, Simpson said he learned the fridge had also been involved in a fire at the family's cabin in 2007. But it is mystery fridge of beer in the midst of floodwaters. To alcohol, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. Oh, Keith, you're predictable. That is, that, <laughs> I just want to say that does not express the uh, conclusions and beliefs of this radio host here. Nope. Uh, <laughs> that was like the most excited I've ever heard you reading any of these. You, yes. you were like yelling with glee I back got there. It. All right, New York, Long Island woman claims she was nearly sucked into her parents' grave <laughs> in 2016 Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh, gosh. Why do I always get this these ones? This is going to be bad. A 64-year-old Long Island woman is suing a local cemetery for traumatic brain injuries, PTSD, and other problems she says she suffered when a sinkhole, oh, my word, allegedly nearly sucked her into her parents' grave during a 2016 visit. That just, I don't even want to read the rest of this because I'm like I'm already getting frightened just reading this story. <gasps> oh, great Odin's raven. <laughs> 
I'm uh, sorry. I don't it's... even know why that was used there, but I loved it. It says she leaned over to adjust a wreath by her parents' shared headstone, and suddenly she found herself sinking. Oh, my gosh. I can't. This is a nightmare. This is spooking me so much right now. Because there was a sinkhole. Oh. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that being your... I'm not, I, I assume it's like a full moon, and there's, you know, a, like a thick fog or something. Like and, I'm... of course, it says she's now afraid to go back to the cemetery, fearful of walking in open grave. Of course nope. she is. Nope. Oh, gosh. That, oh, geez. Wow, that was crazy. Last one, New York. Parents are arguing on Reddit about how many chuggas come before choo-choo. <laughs> you we, reading that. Josh, we, can we please get that sound bite? I want that. Oh, <laughs> That's so good. It says we all have questions, important life-altering questions like how many times are you supposed to say chugga before you say choo-choo? And this is becoming an argument all over the internet on Reddit. Is it two? Is it five? Is it eight? And these people are going at it, and now there's another one going on. How many nanas before <laughs> Batman? That is awesome. Uh, okay, can I just confess something? Yes. You giggling while saying choo-choo is, <laughs> is my favorite part of this show so far. I, <laughs> I've never been happier. <laughs> Thank you for that oh, gift, Brian. You are welcome. <laughs> chug it, chug it, choo-choo, uh, baby. Uh, Awesome. Real highbrow stuff here today on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.